Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 7, verses 12 to 23. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series of Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. We are here faced with some sober warnings and sayings by Jesus that all Christians and all who are curious about Christianity are called to face squarely. If you're curious about Christianity and you are investigating it, this is an important message for all of us because Jesus said these words in front of a curious crowd of mixed both people who believed in him and were following him and those who didn't. And here in these warnings by Jesus, we hear one consistent refrain said three different ways. And that one refrain is this. Jesus is saying to us as clearly as possible, there is only one way to God. There is only one way to eternal life with him, and that way is through me. You must come to me fully. There is no half-hearted allegiance when it comes to me. You must come to me fully, or you do not come to me at all. You are either all in or not at all in. Jesus, in these three sets of contrast, is describing two roads, two ways. He's describing two trees, and he's describing two declarations. And in those sets of two, he's inviting us to ask and answer three questions, one for each set of contrasts. Firstly, what road am I choosing? Secondly, what fruit am I bearing or producing? And thirdly, what verdict or applause am I pursuing? What road, what fruit What verdict? Let's look at those three. What road am I choosing? He invites us to answer that question by these words. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, Jesus has just summarize his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. He's just said the first words of our scripture. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In this, 
Jesus is stating that his sermon is teaching the same ethics as the whole Old Testament. That's what law and prophets means idiomatically. He has given the Old Testament principle of love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's given them a fresh expression here on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this summary, he tells us that that's exactly what he's doing. For this final age in the history of humanity, this final era in the people of God, Jesus says, this sermon encapsulates the law and the prophets. Now here, Jesus then warns us. There's a narrow gate and there's a hard way. These are two parts of the Christian life. He's saying the entrance to Christianity is hard and the way of following Jesus is hard. Sorry, the entrance is narrow and the way is hard. He says few are the ones who do it. We know empirically that that is true, that many fewer people become Christians in any given era of human history than those who do not. This statement, I don't think, is meant to speculate on how many people actually will be with God and, and be having eternal life with him, but I think it expresses this in every age, in every culture, both coming to Jesus, the entrance is narrow, and continuing with Jesus, following him on the way is hard. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. Let's look at that just quickly. The, the way, the gate is narrow, excuse me. Jesus tells people who are not yet Christians that there's only one way to enter into a relationship with God, and that is through faith in him. In John fourteen six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved and they will go in and out and find pasture. Now, in our present multicultural and pluralistic world where tolerance is prized above all things, the easy way is to float with the culture, that there are many roads to God, there are many paths to heaven, as long as you are sincere in what you believe. But Jesus says to this easy way, no, there are not many ways to God. There is only the one way that has been opened to God, and that way is by grace through me. The entrance is narrow. You are not allowed to believe in many ways to God and many paths to heaven. You must humble yourself and say, God decides how many paths there are, and I must submit to his ways. God's way, God's path to him is narrow. There is one way. So that requires that we give up Believing we can earn our way to God, that sincerity of belief is enough. We must humble ourselves completely and confine ourselves to the one way he has given us. And that way is through Jesus, to believe in him. This is existentially hard. It's personally hard. It's emotionally countercultural. We must give up any sense of deserving God's presence and favor. We must give up any sense that the way is easy. The entrance is through Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The entrance is narrow, and the way is hard. Jesus tells tells people, both those who are still considering following Jesus and those who are already following him, that the way of following him, once you go through him, is still hard, because it's the way of self-denial. It's the way of serving others 
and dying to yourself. We walk with Jesus upon the path that he lays out for us, the path that he himself walks. And Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear that? That is the way of self-denial. D.A. Carson, um, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, puts it this way. God's way is confining. Poverty of spirit is not easy. Prayer is not easy. Righteousness is not easy. Transformed God-centered attitudes are not easily achieved. In fact, these things are impossible to us apart from God's grace. In contrast to that, the, the way of the culture is easy. Go with the cultural flow. Believe that God is not holy. Believe that our sin isn't particularly serious. Believe that obeying God is kind of optional and that your spiritual health is not that important. In 2007, I was listening to a Christmas outreach message by a number of people. Intracity put it on. Gary Webster was speaking. At the time, he was CEO of the TTC. He said these words, and I paraphrase them. In my work, I'm held accountable. So I expend a significant amount of energy at being good at what I do. In my home life, my wife and my kids, they keep me accountable daily. So I expend a significant amount of diligence and energy at being a good husband and father. But in the spiritual dimension of life, no one is in my face holding me accountable. So it is easy to get complacent and to let it slide. As we will see, someone is holding us accountable, and that is the Lord Jesus. But many of us feel like Gary Webster did. We find the Christian faith hard and accountability fleeting. So we're tempted to take the easy road. Even if we're Christians, we're tempted to dull the edges of our faith, to follow an easier, more respectable, more comfortable road. And Jesus wants each of us to answer this question. Which road are we taking? D.A. Carson, again, says it very poignantly. Two ways, and only two. The Sermon on the Mount does not end with lofty thoughts of human goodness, sprinkled liberally with naive hope about the inevitability of human progress. It offers two ways, and only two. What road am I taking? The entrance is narrow, and the way is hard. Secondly, what fruit am I producing in my life? This one, probably particularly for Christians, but even those investigating Christianity, you'll find this helpful and, I hope, profound. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here, Jesus has a second question that he invites us to ask. What kind of fruit am I bearing? It's related to the first, what road am I taking? Now, now many of us, if we're not sure what road we're on, Jesus is saying, look at the fruit that you're bearing. Don't look at the perks of your career. Don't look at the perks of our culture and our city, the wealth and the power the city offers. We can admit that 
all those things tempt us. We can admit that all those things feel good to us, and they can and sometimes should. But we can also admit that those things tempt us. And Jesus has a simple question. What fruit are you producing? Now, Jesus here was predicting that false prophets would come, and in context, this means people teaching false things about Jesus, false things about what he teaches us and what he asks us to obey. False teachers pretending to have special mystical knowledge about God were already springing up and infiltrating churches by the time this book was written. So Matthew, looking back, must have found this especially relevant. Peter, one of his disciples, writing in Second Peter, confronted the reality that it had already happened, oh, about a generation, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years after Jesus had died. Peter says in Second Peter, verse 2, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying even the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Do you hear that? False teachings combined with false living. These are the ways we can know about false teachers, and these are the kinds of fruits we should look to see if we're producing ourselves. Because false teachings produce false fruit. They produce selfish, consumeristic, self-focused living. The Peter passage is clear that false teachers, they appeal to false motives. We've seen that in the history of the church. In the last 50 years or so in church history, a movement has arisen within the Christian church called the Prosperity Gospel or the Health and Wealth Gospel, led by TV preachers such as Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, and many others. This false gospel teaches that Jesus wants all of us to be healthy and wealthy. Hence the nickname. That's why Jesus came, they say. Never mind that Jesus himself explicitly said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. That's why he came, to give his life as a ransom for our sin, to give his life to bear the guilt of our selfishness. No, 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 no. They say Jesus came to allow you to bless your selfishness. Now the fruit is twofold. Their teachings about Jesus are completely wrong. They've gotten his mission completely wrong. And the lifestyle that they then pursue as a consequence of this teaching is a lavish, self-centered accrual of wealth at the expense of others. So Jesus says, you will know people by their fruit. This, this word fruit needs to be understood in the context of the whole New Testament teaching. Because Jesus himself says in John 15, if you abide in me as the true vine, as, as the proper tree, you will bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And, and the Apostle Paul describes in detail what this fruit looks like. He says the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit. That's the fruit God's looking to produce in us by his Spirit. So the contrast is clear. Are you growing in pride, selfishness, materialism, greed, ambition for worldly status and power, a greater reputation, 
more applause from people? Are you quietly starting to look down on people who are not as educated and not as competent as you? Or are you producing the fruit of greater love for people, greater faith in people and in God, greater joy, greater peace? Are you experiencing greater gentleness in your life? Are you experiencing greater kindness toward those who maybe aren't as competent as you are? Is COVID robbing you of peace? Or can you find a peace that transcends the anxiety that COVID brings? You see, these are the fruits of God's Spirit. These are the fruits that Jesus wants to produce in you. So Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. Walk down the hard road the lonely road, the road of few, and produce this kind of self-denying fruit. It's not naturally derived fruit. Only the Spirit of God can give you this kind of fruit. You you can't fake it. You can't grow into true love of God and true self-sacrificial love of neighbor unless the grace of God's Holy Spirit is working in you. Two roads. One is hard and narrow, and few take it. Two kinds of fruit. One is the fruit of selfishness, self-ambition, self-actualization, self-promotion. The other is self-denial, others serving, emptying of self for the sake of others and the glory of God. Which fruit are you producing? Finally, which verdict are you pursuing? Uh, The the final part of this is um, Jesus gets very personal. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, hear that word? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What verdict are you pursuing? I I chose this title and specifically the word verdict because I think it gets really clearly at what's going on. But maybe a better word for most of us is whose applause are you seeking? Whose applause are you seeing? Whose verdict of well done are you pursuing? Jesus gets to the heart of the issue here. It's very, very personal. He says there are two kinds of people. Those who declare to me, Lord, Lord, I did all this for you. And those to whom I declare, depart from me. I don't know you. This is one of the most sobering warnings for Christians in all of the Bible. It's one of the most sobering for anyone examining Christianity. Here Jesus is saying, when our lives are done and we face God and our eternal destiny is in the balance, we've crossed through death and are facing what kind of eternal life we will have, one with God or one with not, Jesus will be there to meet us. Jesus will be judging and determining who gets in with God and who doesn't. And Jesus will say to us, I know you or I never knew you. Hear that past tense? You don't get into heaven without personally knowing God, personally being in relationship with God through Jesus, and you don't get into heaven unless you've already known Jesus before you died. You must know him before you finished your life on this earth to have life with him after your life on this earth. There's no other way. Having eternal life is like being invited to a wedding banquet and the guest list is created by Jesus, who is himself the bridegroom of this wedding. And he invites only those whom he all 
already knows. But it actually gets even more sobering. Jesus says, there will be many who do two things. They call me Lord, Lord, and they do powerful works that make it look like they know me. They give prophecies. They cast out demons, and they do many other mighty works. There are observable behavioral evidences that they're his. But Jesus says in their heart they don't know him because they don't obey him from the heart. They are workers of lawlessness. This passage started out with my words summarize the law and the prophets and ends here, if you don't obey them, you're workers of lawlessness. You see the profound claim being made here? This sermon, these words, this is the law of God for the people of God for this era. And Jesus is the one who gives that law. He's God become man, the new final era lawgiver. And the people who obey his words, these words, the Sermon on the Mount, from the heart, with the grace and power and help of the Holy Spirit, these are the ones who actually know him. The rest, no matter how much they may have embedded themselves in the life of the church, if they defy him from the heart, no matter how nicely they speak of him, no matter how gifted they are, no matter how many good effects they may seem to have, they don't know him. Because you can only come to Jesus one way as your Lord, as the Lord of all, to whom you give your whole heart and your whole life. He said to a church, the church of Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, a, a few decades later, these words are recorded. He said to that church, I don't know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, but neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You hear that? Do you know why Jesus kept tailoring his personal encounters with people with pointed confrontations with their most cherished idols? What did he say to the Samaritan woman? Go call your husband. Why? He knew she had an addictive relationship with men, and he knew he had to break that to be the Lord of her life. What did he tell the rich young ruler? Give all your money away and come follow me. Why? Because he knew the rich young ruler coveted his wealth above all things. And he knew that for him to be Lord of this man's life, he needed to displace the money at the center of his sense of identity, self-worth, and value. I remember being in university, sitting for almost 20 minutes, eyes closed, shaking, when I was confronted by this truth that to know Jesus personally is to know him as my Lord and to fully submit to him. I believed intellectually that Jesus, by the evidence I had seen, was really risen from the dead in God. I knew he was God's son. But I needed to go from intellectual to a heart full, wholehearted giving of my life to him in faith. I needed to give him my life so I could be known by him. And as I closed my eyes, a scene came into my mind. I was sitting on a nice white fence. Many of you have heard this story before. I'm sorry, but it just fits this moment. Suddenly, the fence began to crumble under me. And I looked ahead of me, and there was only one person. Bathed in light was a pasture, a field, and there was Jesus. But he was alone. 
and I could hear voices of all my friends and all my family behind me. So I turned on the fence, and I looked the other way, and all I saw was darkness. But I could hear all my friends and my family. Everyone I knew was behind me, but the fence was crumbling, and I know what that meant. There is no fence. There are only two ways. You can't sit on the fence. You've either got to go to Jesus, even if you leave everybody else behind. You've got to follow a lonelier road, perhaps. A harder road, for sure. I had to face this. And that's exactly what happened. My friends, my family, they didn't understand the decision I was making. Following Jesus personally can be very lonely. Few people can be with you. Few people want to make this kind of sacrifice. Few few people have the courage to go against the cultural tide. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. The fruit you bear is the fruit of self-denial, of growing love, patience, kindness, generosity. And even in the church, it's easy to kind of create a churchified, easier road to do the things that Christians do, even in this case, tapping into some kind of spiritual power, pretending to have gifts of prophecy. Jesus had talked about false prophets, so I take this to mean they, these people who said they prophesied in his name were probably false prophets. But they never really gave it all up for Jesus. They weren't all in. Jesus says all in or not in. For leaders like me, there's a temptation here to rely upon our gifts not on continuing to develop these spiritual fruits of self-denial and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and love and joy and peace. The temptation is to rely upon the applause of people, to rely upon the verdict of other Christians to tell me that I'm a good Christian, rather than to look Jesus in the face and say, I'm obeying everything you've given me to, or I'm trying to. At the end of the day, What the people in this last section are probably guilty of is relying upon the applause of the congregation. Publicly amazing things they did. Public applause they almost certainly got. But the verdict of well done by Jesus, they never got. Jason Storsley, CEO of Direct Investing here in Toronto, put it this way. We seem to repeat the behavior that we get the most accolades from. In his case, he said the temptation was to invest most of his time and energy into his business because he got so many accolades from it. Not his family or his faith. How about you? How about me? A couple quick applications here about these three invitations. What road are you on? What fruit are you producing? What verdict are you pursuing? First application. For those of us who feel like we're a bit on the fence, torn between Jesus and the easy way, we need to understand there is no fence. There are two ways and only two. Jesus is taking that fence down right in front of your eyes. He's asking you, like he asked the rich young ruler, what is it that you most value? Give it up and come follow me. You need to choose this day whom you will serve. And tomorrow, choose again. And the day after that, again, all in is the only way in. Secondly, 
for those of you who are, in the words of that wise cultural exegete Jeffrey Hines, chronic overachievers, many of you have probably been weighed down by this message, and you wonder if you are even a Christian. I get that. I heard a message like this when I was a young Christian, and I didn't understand even if I was a Christian anymore. And so I went up to the person who spoke. His name was R.C. Sproul, known to be a very abrupt, impatient, but brilliant man. And he was walking to a break. And I just said, Dr. Sproul, I don't understand from this how I can even believe that I'm a Christian. And he looked at me. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I just have all these doubts based on on how hard this, this standard is. He says, young man, let me ask you three questions. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus as this? As the, man, as the one who died for you. I said, yes, I believe he's the son of God who died for me. Good. Do you have any fruit? Any fruit? I said, well, I got some fruit, and I'm not really sure if it's the... Excuse me. Do you have any fruit? Love, joy, peace, peace. Do you have any fruit since you become a Christian? And I said, yeah, I do. It's just not... I didn't ask how good it was. I asked, do you have it? I said, yes. He said, I want to ask you a question, and he grabbed me by the shoulder and says, do you have any love for God at all? And I said, well... To be honest, I, I do love him, but I don't, I don't love him enough. And I began to, and he just shook me, and he said, stop. I said, any love at all? And I said, yes, I, I love God. He said, okay, I have one final question. How, young man, were you able to say yes to all three of my questions, except by the Spirit of God? I got to go, bye, and he left. You know what? That abrupt, aggressive words was right what I needed. I do have faith. I do have some fruit. I do have some love. I mourn that I don't have more faith, more fruit, and more love. But that mourning is part of the work of the Spirit of God in me. Because here's the key. The whole Sermon on the Mount was not only meant to give you a standard of obedience to know that you're all in to aspire to. But it's meant to be something that makes you realize you need his grace every day. Calvin said, it is of no little importance to be rid of your self-love and made fully conscious of your own weakness. So impressed with a sense of your weakness as to learn to distrust yourself. To distrust yourself so as to transfer your confidence to God, reclining on Him with such heartfelt confidence as to trust in His aid and continue invincible to the end, standing by His grace so as to perceive that he is true to all his promises and so assured of the certainty of his promises that you are strong in hope. Men and women, who do we follow? We follow a Savior who calls us to follow him because he entered by the narrow gate. How narrow? God himself became human. And being human, he lived a sinless life. How hard, how narrow is that gate? How hard is that way? He took the road of suffering. He's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What fruit was he producing? Was it the fruit of obedience from the heart? Or is it the fruit of selfishness? Every day he lived a life of servanthood and poured his life out for us every single day day. He lived a sinless, innocent life for you and for me so he could be a ransom for us. 
What did his father declare about him? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because what declaration was he able to make in truth? In John 17, Father, I have accomplished everything you brought me to do. Now glorify, your, now glorify me with the glory you had before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus entered by the narrow gate and he walked the hard path of sorrows and suffering. Jesus bore the true fruit of perfect, innocent, sinless life of love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness. And he was the one of whom his father declared, this is my beloved son. And he is the one who died for you, that his grace may be poured out for you. Let his grace flow into you. Let these words sting you and send you to the cross and let you experience anew the grace of God. And if you're here and you, you're not yet a Christian, let these words for the first time make you realize there's only one way to be all in. And that's to come to Jesus with all the stuff that is in you and to confess it and say it is wrong and let him come and pour his grace out over all of it so that all that is in you is his grace and his spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. Now, let these words sink in and show us which road to take, which fruit to produce, which applause to pursue. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.